0: I'm not a medical scientist. It's not the science that really grabs me. The science is something I've learned as a tool to have something to offer people. Personally, what I'm really interested in is the human condition. Uh, I'm interested in what humans do when they bump up against things they can't control. I'm Bon Ku, the host of Design Lab. As a physician, one of the
1: hardest things I have to do is to tell a family member that their loved one has died. Because most of the time, they're not prepared for it. We as a society, we are not prepared for the end of life. We are not prepared for death. We need to redesign how we die, how we approach the end of life. B.J. Miller, he's a palliative care physician, and he can help us with that. He's on a mission to redesign how we die. B.J. is the co-author of the book, A Beginner's Guide to the End. His TED Talk on redesigning death has over 11 million views. And he's even been interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. How cool is that? I asked BJ about the role of design in reimagining the dying experience, how BJ's been helping people during this pandemic navigate illness through his new company, Mental Health, and why majoring in art history as an undergrad at Princeton University has helped him become a better physician. I'm a huge fan of BJ Miller. He's charismatic, articulate, humble. You are going to fall in love with him. And he is going to inspire you to live a more meaningful life. He's going to do that by reframing your understanding of death. So if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do. Rate it, give feedback. Doing this helps others to find us. I appreciate it. Okay, here's my conversation with BJ Miller. BJ Miller, thanks for joining me on Design Lab.
0: Thanks for having me, Bon. It's a pleasure. I heard you say
1: that healthcare is badly designed. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, start with the experience. I mean, I think you just have to be, well, you can be a patient, you could be a clinician, you can be an administrator. I think from just about every angle, uh, when you engage the healthcare system, one way or another, it typically leaves you feeling... Uh, a little out of sorts, discombobulated, unseen, unheard, and just sort of pigeonholed. So I just start from the experience. Again, wearing my hat as a doctor, but first as a patient. And you know, you just feel this. So you start with that outcome as being subpar. And then in my own life through healthcare as I've become a physician and studied it and all that stuff, you realize that it's got this inborn design flaw. And basically that flaw is... That the medical system is focused on the disease mm-hmm. and the person who's inhabiting this disease is somewhat incidental and that is as brief as i can put it that is the design flaw
1: yeah it's it's designed around these icd10 codes that that we have and not around the human and exactly it, it's so fundamental but i know i just didn't realize that going through med school and residency training even practicing that this model that we have is a disease-based model and not a human-based model. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious to know how you got interested in design and applying that to healthcare. Because fun fact, we're a couple of weirdo doctors who actually co-wrote a book with a designer. So your book called A Beginner's Guide to the End you wrote that with Shoshana Berger from IDEO. Yep. Can you just tell me the origin story <laughs> behind that?
0: Yeah. And it also answers your question about sort of why design. I, I was interested in design because I'm interested in the built environment. I'm interested in aesthetics and this our man-made world and feeling that, of course, that healthcare could really use design thinking because you just have this feeling that it's just poorly designed. I didn't realize that there was a whole field around design thinking. I'm more, I'm guilty of, I thought this was, you know, if if a hospital is a product, that if we got good designers in there, a hospital would function better. I I learned that there was a whole process that you could apply just about anything. But So I, I, I was fumbling around IDEO years ago with a friend of mine, we were designing or trying to start a little business designing footwear for prosthetic feet. And I can't remember how it happened, but IDEO has this like lunch series where they'll invite, you know, startups in the designers show up around a table, they get a free lunch and you pitch your idea and they just shotgun you with ideas. You know, they just say, you know, have you thought about this X, Y, Z? It's just like a quick, quick hit design lab And so my friend and I went and did that around this prosthetic shoe idea. And it was wonderful. It was just such a cool, Mm. interesting environment to be in. It was so provocative and wonderful. I loved it, just even being in the building. And then during my sort of pitch about our little idea, I was talking about how how beauty can be therapeutic and how Mm. part of the problem of being a disabled person in this world is you get the feeling that nothing's designed for you. And that has a demoralizing component to it. The world isn't made for you, literally. And you feel left out. And, you know, why do orthopedic shoes? It's like, a, you know, it's, a, it's like it's an insult. You say, hey, man, nice orthopedic shoes. It's like saying, hey, nice, ugly ass shoes. They're, they're all ugly. Yes. They're grotesque. Yes, yeah, and it's kind of stunning. I've watched this through my mother's eyes as a disabled person and not my own. My mom uses a wheelchair from polio, and I've just seen all this clunky stuff that where beauty, where form really is barely considered. And so why? It almost feels like, you know, if the customer, has to get this thing. Has no choice. They need this thing. Well, then the designers don't need to make it beautiful or compelling or whatever else because they need it. They're, they're you know, you don't need to sweeten the deal. It's mm-hmm. so sort of feeling like well, that's lame and uninspired and unfair. But we're also missing the cue that the tactile, the, f- the form, the aesthetic of it the ethos of someone designing to your situation, all of that has a big, big therapeutic effect, not just a pretty effect, a Mm. a deeply therapeutic one. So I was going off on this bent, and then I got a call a couple of weeks later from one of the designers, a guy named David Webster, who had liked what I was saying and Googled me and found out my day job and blah, 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 and learned that I was interested in end-of-life care and blah, blah, blah. And he invited me back into IDEO, and we had this sort of courtship for months where I would just come give a talk, we'd pal around, we'd talk about the way things could be. And then eventually we ended up hiring IDEO when I was at Zen Hospice Project to do a, a little, some work on the rebranding the organization. And through that whole process, I just became immersed in IDEO and the people and the design process. And that's how I came to Shoshana and away we went.
1: So what role does design play in death and dying?
0: Well, it plays a big role if you let it. I mean, in, in this idea that you start with, you know, you, there's, Inductive reasoning. You start with the end, you know, in a design thinking kind of way, you start with the outcome you might want to have or the experience you might want to foster. And in this case, you start with the end point, which is holy shit, we have to die. We have to exit mm. the planet. So, you know, as a creative exercise, no one starts with a blank sheet of paper. They've got an architect has to deal with gravity, you know, whatever materials, you know, you you have limitations and that's where the creative process begins. And here in this human endeavor, we have this enormous limitation in which, which is our time is limited. Mm -hmm. And if you build that into as, as a basic design principle and you work from there, you might imagine that the products that you design, the things that you create will be and look different. You have baked in frailty you will have baked in ephemerality you will have baked in legacy and memory all these things that go with the fact of death if you welcome that into a design brief then the world will start looking pretty different right now we design things as though we're going to live forever mm-hmm. we don't it's just not on the it's not on the it's not in the design brief in your book
1: i i started reading it and it's sort of like a field manual for redesigning the dying Mm -hmm. experience or redesign death. And what struck me is it's so practical. There are some things that I need to start working on now Mm. and I don't have a terminal illness. I'm pretty healthy. I hopefully have another 40 or 50, 60 years ago. and (laughs) But it struck me that if I want to redesign that experience, that there's stuff I need to be working on now for that. You got it. Yep. What was your motivation for writing the book?
0: Well, a couple of things, Bon. I mean, one is, you know, as a, as a provider, you know, we see all these, where death is sort of an afterthought, where death is, is a failure. So you're not designing for it. That's the thing you're designing against in a way. You see what happens when you don't include death in your design process. Look at our healthcare system, you know, and you see the fallout. And you see how medicine is more transactional, is not considered an experience. We don't consider illness an experience. And so of course that leaves so much out of the picture. So a long-winded way of saying, what I was seeing as a provider was all this unnecessary pain, all this unnecessary suffering, hmm. that I had patients who had never dared to think of their time as limited, who had never dared to plan for their end and left it up to sort of the fates. And you know, basically people, Coming to the end of life, had never given it a second thought, and therefore hadn 't gotten their affairs in order hadn 't reconciled relationships hadn 't saved money appropriately hadn 't dealt with their own regret pile so all and all of a sudden death is near, and this is the first time they 're thinking about it, and the misery is just compounded
2: hmm.
0: so so I guess one answer to your question, Bon, is one of the motivations here was essentially harm reduction like hmm. Dying is a mysterious amazing process, but we do know a lot about it and you can plan for it and you can make it less hard on yourself with some basic information, some basic knowledge, some uh, basic support. And so that's the main motivation is how do we make something hard less hard? And something, you know, that can be very where there's suffering, how do we ease that suffering? So that that's one answer to your question. Mm-hmm. But a second answer to your question, and maybe my favorite, or the bigger one, is it's like what you're pointing to, Bond. You're not sick. You, you know, you have an indefinite lifespan in front of you. Of course, things could change in an instant, and all that. But for you, it may not be so compelling to say, "Hey, do these things now, Bond," because later on you'll be less miserable. Mm-hmm. The bigger argument I would make to you, Bon, is pay attention to your mortality now while you have life in front of you. Because Mm. if you bake that in, you might treat yourself a little differently. You might treat people a little bit differently. You might be a little bit more prone to be kind to yourself and others and not be angry at yourself when your body starts to fall apart. The the fact that something ends is what makes it precious. Mm. So when you kind of come to terms with the fact that you're going to die, you, I would imagine, Bond, you'll start finding a lot more meaning in your daily life, a lot more beauty in your daily life. It is the foil for so much, so much beauty in our life. So my argument to you would be, Bond, yeah, do these things not to make your life less miserable 40 years from now, but right now, so you can really deeply appreciate you have what you have while you have it. That's the trick.
1: It's 180-degree turnaround from what. Normally, people would think about death that you're just reframing what death is, and, yeah. and I heard you say you asked people if you could push this magic button to live forever mm-hmm. that only ten percent of the people would actually push that button right yeah. yeah yep, and that's 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 very insightful and Why do you think
0: that is? Why is it only ten percent? Well, because I think if we 're honest with ourselves, I mean life is hard. And we get tired and life is hard and scary sometimes. And Lord knows where the planet's going. And we run out of resources. We run out of steam. And on some level, the end can be a comforting thought. Like, I I don't have to be here forever. I don't have to toil forever. I mean, I think the counterpoint here would be look at all our films. Look at uh, popular culture's approach to immortality, zombies, zombies. Hmm. vampires, you know, the folks who live forever are not a happy bunch undead, you know? And, oh my gosh. I never even thought of that. Yeah. So I don't know if there's a counterpoint. I don't know I'm sure of any popular cultural treatment of immortality where the person living forever isn't miserable. Wow. <laughs> the there's miserable. And there may be a counterpoint. I haven't, I just, I'm not thinking of it. So, uh, and I think there's, so I think there's, if we allow, this is a good example, Bond, where, if you don't give death any t- attention, it just sounds like you absorbed the social cues around it. It's this, mm. it's this hard, horrible thing that no one wants to have happen, but it's going to happen someday down the road, you know, and you just kind of mm, put your blinders on and keep moving. And just like anything else, we stuff in the closet. If we don't look at it, that's when it gets horns and teeth and gets gnarly. So by pulling it out of the closet, shining some light on it and seeing its role in our daily lives and its relationship to life in the first place, I mean, you don't have to love death. You don't have to really get giddy about it, but mm-hmm. just that it exists, you can begin to have a fuller frame of reality. Your worldview, mm-hmm. if you rope death into it, starts that's starts looking different, starts feeling different. So Anyway, I'm going on a little bit here, but it is telling that when people just pause, even for a moment to think about it, they realize, hell no, I don't want to live forever. (laughs) And just that (laughs) alone just kind of helps break the plane of death is this horrible thing that no one wants to ever have happen.
1: That's just not true. Totally. So you're a palliative care doctor. Yeah. What does that look like? Because a lot of people don't know what palliative medicine is. I think even a lot of doctors don't know what palliative sure, right. medicine is, right? So we don't, I don't remember being on a palliative medicine rotation in medical school. And I know a few yeah. folks who do it, but I bet you most of the public does not know what your work entails. So can you just describe that in a nutshell? Yeah.
0: Yeah, brother. Thank you. It's a really, it's a good public service announcement because you're right. No one knows what the hell palliative care is, mm-hmm. even if it's in medicine. Mm-hmm. And it's weird. We have a whole branding messaging problem in the field. And uh, a lot of people have been thinking about it, but for some reason we haven't, we haven't figured this nut out, but so, so, so for your listeners, palliative care, it has become a medical specialty since 2006. It is basically, there are longer winded definitions of it, but it is essentially the context of palliative care is serious illness. So within the confines, within the context of serious illness, palliative care is the interdisciplinary pursuit of quality of life and the treatment of suffering. That's it. You know, Mm -hmm. there's no mention of death in there. There's no time that you have left to live. That's palliative care writ large. Most people conflate palliative care with its big brother, which is hospice. Mm -hmm. And hospice is a type of palliative care that is just focused around the end of life. So the public, I think they think these things are synonymous. Mm. And we have really struggled to differentiate them. So again, palliative care, pursuit of quality of life. Anytime along the way. And you can get palliative care right alongside intensive care. You know, you don't have to give up anything to get palliative care. It's just mm-hmm. extra support for your social, your spiritual, your physical existence.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Hospice is the subset of palliative care reserved for the final months of life. And it gets further confusing, Bon, because hospice is also since the mid 80s is an insurance designation. Mm. So that's when we say someone's on hospice, we mean they're on the hospice insurance benefit. And because of that structural overlay, a doctor's got to tell you you have six months or less to live. You have to give up curative intended treatment to get hospice. Mm. So it really is a fork in the road. It's a wonderful thing when people take that fork. It generally serves people very, very well, but you have to give up stuff to get it. And you have to know your prognosis. Mm. Whereas palliative care, you can get it alongside any kind of care at any time along the way. Does, does that make sense? It's a lot super, of work?
1: super helpful, super okay. helpful. Good. And you so you recently co-founded a company called metal health, m e t t
0: l e. yeah, what what does that company do? <laughs> yeah. so yeah, what's so fun. We just started this summer. It was my business partner, Sonia. It was our response to Covid. You know, previously, coming out of writing the book, Sonia and I were going to begin a nonprofit to build out this sort of public resource, this library, the sort of latest of clinical science right next to social sciences, pulling from the arts, just blow up the subject of mortality and disability and illness and offer basically vetted materials, resources, information. Hmm. The the issue we were trying to push back on was that that people go Google their disease and Hmm. get sent down these rabbit holes of decontextualized and unauthorized information Hmm. and then end up you know, you've probably seen this, you know, you, you have, the <laughs> you Google your disease, you have all this access to information and you might convince yourself you're informed, but it turns out there's all these exceptions to your situation. The, anyway, it, it's an unregulated mess. So
1: hard to find good quality information, even if you're a smart person and yeah. who's savvy.
0: Yeah. Exactly. It often feels like that the internet sometimes it makes illness harder on some level mm-hmm. in this way. So this was the issue we were going to try to lean into is get, have a source, an alternative to Googling your d- disease that allowed you to get vetted information and be informed and make good decisions for yourself. We love that idea. We love to still do that, but then that was a nonprofit play. We were beginning to raise money for this library it was called the Center for Dying and Living. We still It still exists. It's our mm. little nonprofit arm, but we need to infuse it with a lot more resourcing and, and, and money. <laughs> but meanwhile, COVID hit. And so we figured that what the world needed right now was really direct support. Mm. Not so much an abstract thing like a library. People needed to talk to someone right now. Yeah. So we pivoted, as they say, and started Mental Health as its own little business, which is, it's a place you go online to get, essentially to get palliative care, to get this kind of support, to be smothered in loving support.
1: What is like a typical use case of someone that w- would go on and and get online support?
0: Yeah, well, so I just had a client this morning. And so I say clients now. So one thing about our model at mental health is we're not a medical model. We are mm. staffed by clinicians, people with medical experience. But I'm not acting as someone's doctor through mental health. They're not patients, they're clients now. Mm. And they're they may be coming to us because they are a patient themselves or a caregiver. Actually, most of our clients are caregivers mm. so far. So, but we are concerning ourselves with it's really counseling and coaching. So if mm. you came to me, Bond and said, "Hey, I've got this d- illness." I've got a treatment decision to make. I don't really know what to do. I can't talk to my doctor about X, Y, or Z. Help me figure out how to make these decisions. Help me figure out how to navigate the healthcare system. Hmm. So we're a one step remove as counselors and coaches, not becoming people's medical providers. So that's an important piece of the model. So like this morning, a client reached out, her father had a stroke. He's suffering mightily and They're running out of resources. She's sensing that he's not getting the care that he needs. They don't have the money for it. So what rocks can they turn over to get more help in the Mm -hmm. home for him? how can they reassure themselves that they're getting whatever care they are getting is as good as it can be. You mm. know, basically people want confidence. I think we can all deal with uncertainty if we can be assured that we know what's knowable. So part of my job with her is to help her know what's knowable mm. and then support her as her and her role as being a daughter of of someone struggling at home and trying to raise her own family too. And then the last point that came in our conversation this morning was that she's at odds with her brother. He's got this decision making capacity as a proxy, but she's more involved. So there's tension between her brother and her at the caregiving side of things. So my job is to help them vent all that, support them emotionally, link them to practical resources, and to help them take care of themselves along the way. Why
1: don't more services like this exist? It's such, it feels like it fits, it meets this void out yeah. there. I mean, and yep. anyone who has experienced someone close to them die, we need help. And often we don't get help. You know, yep. when my father in law died, it was a traumatic experience. I would have loved to use a service like this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm shocked that they haven't that, that there's not much out there. I mean there is a burgeoning sort of I mean industry is too strong a word around healthcare coaching, mm-hmm. patient navigation, death doulas Mm-hmm. There are sort of these small, nascent things popping up around sort of supportive structures to help people navigate healthcare, navigate illness, etc. It, but it's small, it's teeny. Mm-hmm. I think we all just assume that our doctor will take care of us when it's our time. Our, you know, I'll hand myself over to the doctor and I'll be fine. The trick is, the problem is back to this design, poor design system, we're at this funny place, Bond, where, you know, it's just dangerous to hand yourself over to the doctor. First of all, because mm-hmm. medicine's so fragmented, that mm-hmm. doctor's probably got 40 patients. Yeah. They rotate in and out. The, the old paradigm of a family practice doc who you know, birthed you, took care of your mom, knows you across the whole spectrum of your life. That's very, very rare. So even if you happen to get lucky and have a very competent and really caring doctor, they're not gonna have the time or ability to really deeply know you past mm. your diagnosis. Yeah. You know, they're not going to really know what makes bond tick. And that's, so that's one big force. And then the second big force here is our technology progress to the point where, you know, man, we can, we can prop a body up practically indefinitely. Mm. So I think the public still has this idea that, look, the doctor will tell me what I need. I'll go down the list of things to try to treat this disease. If, and when we run out of things to try then I'll accept that the end's coming. Then I'll get my affairs in order and you know that's the way it'll go. But the problem now is you can't, first of all, you're not gonna find a doctor who can know you in that way. Mm-hmm. It's very unlikely. Secondly, <laughs> that list of possible treatments is not gonna is not likely gonna run out. There's always gonna be something mm-hmm. else to try, a trial or whatever else. Yeah. So you can't just let you can't let the system sculpt your experience. You have to be much more proactive now in what in stating your wishes, what you want, what you need, and what your what treatments you don't really you're not interested mm-hmm. in. I mean, you got to learn at some point. Most people need to say no to the healthcare system, and that is not an intuitive experience.
1: It, it is not. We've been designed to say yes. Mm-hmm. And doctors have been trained to say, let's do one more thing. That's yeah. just how medical education and training is designed. That's right. You and got it. we do not think about how to say no or help patients to say no. It's the default oh. is, is yes. And to do more. And sometimes that is not the right choice.
0: I'd say eventually it's, it's not the right choice for everybody. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah.
1: I, I want to switch gears a little bit. And you went to Princeton University and you studied art history as an undergrad. Yeah. That is a weird major for doctors. <laughs> Did, do you think studying art had an impact upon your career as a physician?
0: Totally. Oh, yeah. I'd really recommend it as a... It does feel like the least likely, one of the least likely majors to land you in medicine. But if your interest is in human beings, in humanity, and what the hell, why, why humans do the things they do, which is where I'm interested in. I'm not a medical scientist. It's not the science that really grabs me. The science is something I've learned as a tool of, to have something to offer people. Personally, what I'm really interested in is the human condition. Uh, I'm interested in what humans do when they bump up against things they can't control. And so studying art for me Was a beautiful way for me to really explore the human condition, to explore how human beings make meaning from their experience and how humans learn this act of perspective making, how we learn how to see. So, you know, especially when you can't change what you're looking at, you can change how you see it. It is an incredible human talent. It is an incredible capacity. And by studying art, I, I learned it helped me learn how to see. It helped me learn the invaluable mechanism of perspective. And that has served me incredibly well.
1: That's amazing. So all all you folks who are pre-meds in college that might be listening, you could you can major in art, art history and still become a physician. You will need to major in um, biochemistry, even though that's a great major, but I think we <laughs> need some more art history majors in in medicine. I think so. You have described creativity as being important to you. Can you talk about how you use creativity as in your work?
0: Yeah, well, for me personally, you know studying art was was this beginning, this, this hunch that the arts had a lot to teach me as much as my rehab, my physical therapists and rehab guys with in all the ways we just described. Right. And watching artists create from their experience, take the raw material of their life, their experience and make something of it. To me, that was a perfect, you know, I don't know if that's a metaphor or what that is an analogy, but for me coming out of my injuries, when I was 19, I, Embrace that mindset. I don't think of myself as an artist, but I do think of I do see myself trying to build something out of this rubble that was my life. Mm. And I sort of embrace that process. So then I started to see myself as a creative person. And then I started looking around and you start seeing daily life as a creative act. Like, you know, Mm. you daily life is filled with improv. You know, we, things come at us. We got to make decisions. We're bobbing and weaving. We, it's not like we have a script for every day. We're making shit up all the time. Yeah. And you start seeing, I had, a, you know, this artistic idea that a creative person wore all black and <laughs> had a studio and, you know, and I was real. I would admire those cool guys, but I wasn't one of them. But then I started by borrowing their process. I started to get to feel like I was a creative person and it was very empowering. Rather than this guy who's was just reacting to life coming at me and doing what I was told, I could sort of take the reins a little bit, see my life as material, as stuff to work with, the stuff to play with, and begin this creative endeavor of, of building a day, building a life. And so that was for me, very powerful. And it's the same process I I use with patients and families is to get them to see where they have agency, where they do have choice and where they can begin to play with the facts of their life rather than just be prisoners of them. So that's, that to me is a creative process.
1: I I love that you articulated what I have been feeling because I didn't think of myself as a creative person until after all my training and Uh after working as an emergency medicine physician. And I would always be jealous of my friends who were in quote-unquote creative fields, the artists, the musicians, designers. We like to give listeners a takeaway that they could apply to their everyday lives. And Uh I love when you talk about how to end well, it means you need to live well. And what are some practical ways that people could live well?
0: Well, I mean, there are a couple of things to say. I mean, you know, I think like we've talked about, I think step one is daring to realize you don't have to dwell on it, but just daring to realize that your life, this life, this body, you, your ego, yourself won't be around forever. Just begin to welcome in that you are an ephemeral critter. You as you, you know, and then like we've been talking, you can, as you welcome that into your view of reality, it gets less scary. And as limitations go, we can start creatively responding to it. So step one would be just to begin to get in touch with the fact that you are finite. Your time on planet is finite. I think from there, you start taking your time a little bit more seriously. You start, like for me, it's a really, one of the ways it's allowed me to live better is when I realize that no matter what I do, whether I don't smoke, whether I eat my kale, whatever it is, I'm going to die someday. It's not a failure. It's not like I didn't try. And knowing that that end is coming allows me to be a little less paralyzed. So what I mean by that is to say, okay, if I know the end is death, no matter what I do, well then I might as well try because I have nothing to lose. Mm. It sort of allows me to get past my fear and say, what do I, so I, I'll try anything it allows me to try things and allows me to see past my own fear. And then secondly, you know, and invariably I can't get to everything that I want to invariably, I'm going to fail here and there. And so in this context, I also learn the the very important act of forgiving myself. So Hmm. I get this by welcoming death into my field of view. It gives me the reason to try. I don't have all that much time. So I might as well try these things and I'm going to, I'm going to lose either way. I'm going to die either way. So I might as well try, at the same time so it, it marshals my energy and at the end of the day I get to say you know hey I'm just one little mortal guy a little fleck of sand that I didn't change the world okay I forgive myself I'm okay I'm I'm trying so does that make sense I get uh, I'm 100%
1: the, that okay. I, yeah that was, that was fantastic <laughs> I'm definitely going to apply that to my own life but thanks PJ, for joining us on design lab
0: It's such a pleasure. As you can tell, man, there's so much to talk about. I love talking to you. I just blah, 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 blah. But anyway, thanks so much for having me, man. It's such a pleasure talking to you, Bon.
1: All right. All right. Now is the time I'm joined by the producer of Design Lab, Rob Paglisi. Rob and I use this time to reflect upon what our guest has said and to think about some takeaways for all of us who are listening.
2: Bon, that was a really great episode with BJ. Um, love his message and how he brings design and healthcare together. Kind of like somebody else I know.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there's so many, so much synergy there, man. I have been following BJ's work for years. His TED talk is so inspiring. He's been interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. I felt a little intimidated going into the interview with him, but he yeah, is, but he's
2: such a nice guy.
1: He's so so laid back. So so humble it was it was real joy to speak with bj
2: yeah i know if you if you haven't seen that ted talk his ted talk actually has almost 12 million views on the ted website which is insane he's got an amazing story and other than that though you know why did you want to talk to him why do you want to bring him on the show
1: you know it's because I, i was really struck by his quote in that ted talk when he says the healthcare system is designed around disease not humans And the whole system is fundamentally designed incorrectly. And one thing that we need to do is redesign how we die as patients. Not even as patients. We need to redesign how we die as humans. And he is so provocative, his approach to death. death, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That death is not... Death has such a negative connotation, right? But we can use death as a way to pivot and live our lives better.
2: Yeah. And he was talking, you know, this, this his TED Talk was in 2015. And he was talking about... Is that about, long you know, ago? Yeah, this was 2015. Wow. And he was talking about using design thinking to improve the dying experience. That's something that people are still trying to wrap their heads around. So he's definitely ahead of him, his time there. And, you know, some of the things he suggested about thinking about your own mortality earlier on so that it's like one less trauma to experience when that day comes. You know, what do you think about? How could, how could you bring, you know, your own mortality into your daily life?
1: I mean, to prepare for a good death, to prepare to die well, you need to end up living well. And that's what he says in his book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing, one practical thing is living without regret and trying to live your best life every day so preparing to die well you need to live every day without regret and try to do that as much as possible
2: and and what better space than end of life care that that you can apply design to right this is such a universal thing and i think one of the things he said in his talk was um there's no do-overs when it comes to end of life right so you, you have to get it right and you have to try And one of the things, too, that we do a lot on the show is we address kind of language and stigma and how we define things. Right. So just the fact that we're talking about palliative care and how it differs from hospice and educating folks on that. That's that's super important. Um, Some like facts about palliative care. There are 90 million Americans at any one time with a serious illness in the United States. It's expected to double as the baby boomers come of age. And things like palliative care and hospice are going to be even more important. So how can we start designing better end-of-life care? What are your thoughts?
1: We have to prepare for it. We have to do that like right now. We can't wait until we have a quote unquote, like a terminal illness that we need to be thinking about preparing for the way that we want to die, how we want to die, what our experience is. There's so much preparation on the beginning of life when we get born, but very little preparation on the end of life. And it's a subject matter that a lot of us don't want to talk about. It's a little bit morbid, I think, for people, but I think we just need to reframe death. Mm -hmm. That is, it is we all are going to die. It is inevitable. It is the common thread among humans. And yet, how many times have you had a conversation
2: about how you wanna die, the manner in which you wanna die right, um, at a dinner party, right? And one more thing that really surprised me when I was looking into the palliative care and hospice space is that um, every year, so this is a hospice stat, 1.5 million Americans that are on Medicaid get hospice care 82% of them are white. What? Think of that for a second. Wow. So, so 82% of the people who get hospice care are white. Yeah.
1: I mean and there's there's an opportunity there to introduce that type of care for communities of color. You know, and it it's it's a it's a terrible stat. I mean, no one wants to die in an intensive care bed, right? You know, mm-hmm. we want we want to humanize death, and I think we need to humanize death, especially in communities of color.
2: Yeah. So it's amazing to have people like B.J. who are really thinking differently about this and are leading the way to improve this experience, because there's still a lot more work that has to happen, and I don't think we can afford to fail.
1: Yeah and you know you got to you got to read his book it's so good a beginner's guide to the end you can't have my copy cuz i'm i'm still reading through it right now but it is so practical uh, it's clearly written there's some pictures in there you'll like them rob and you're not a big reader but you know a lot of pictures in there for you man
2: Is there a manga version <laughs> What is that I have no idea what you're talking about Yeah uh, yeah ask your kids All right. Thanks, Bon. See ya. All right, man. Later.
1: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with BJ Miller. You can follow him on Twitter. And I highly recommend his book, A Beginner's Guide to the End. It's practical. It's life-changing. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Design Lab. Please subscribe, rate, give feedback to the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. I'm your host, Bon Koo. Rob Paglisi produced this episode and our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston. See you next week.